Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 286, The Entire History of NASA. I'm Gary Jordan. I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, usually to talk about human spaceflight, but you know what? Why limit ourselves, right? NASA has a rich and storied history. Its beginnings, people often forget, was in aviation. The NACA, or National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, laid the groundwork for how we think about a national space program. And it's more than just humans flying in the air and in space. NASA has programs that extend from our home planet to the farthest reaches of the universe. It's hard to capture everything that NASA has done since its formation, but there's a new ebook that does a pretty good job. This ebook is published on NASA.gov right now, and it's called NACA to NASA to Now. The Frontiers of Air and Space in the American Century. It came out very recently, and it captures some of the most significant moments and programs of NASA's history and puts it into one concise volume. It's a great read, full of narratives and layers that help to demonstrate how widespread NASA's efforts are. Lucky for us, we were able to chat with the book's author, Roger Launius, formerly NASA's chief historian and the associate director for collections and curatorial affairs at the Smithsonian Institution's National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. Roger talks about the inspiration for writing the book and walks us through some of the key moments. Very much looking forward to this conversation. Let's get right into it. Enjoy. Roger Lanius, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast today. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. All right. Uh, wonderful book that you read. Uh, I, I got a chance to finish it earlier this week, and um, it was it, it did a really good job of capturing it. I'm so happy to have you on to help to to kind of go through it. Um, but but I kind of wanted to start before we before we really dive into the book is just you know the story of you and how you got this idea and and what the, the process of actually writing the book. Uh, Roger, I know you know prior to your current tenure at the uh, Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum, you spent some time as NASA's chief historian. How'd you get that role? I did. Uh, so between 1990 and 2002, I was the NASA chief historian there at NASA headquarters in D.C. The, uh, I had been working as a historian for the U.S. Air Force at the time. After I finished my Ph.D., right. I uh, took a job with the Air Force. And literally in those days, uh, I was in the personnel office at Scott Air Force Base, Illinois, and I saw an advertisement for the chief historian for NASA on the bulletin board. Hmm. So I grabbed that, applied for the job, pre-internet era, you know, sent him a resume through the mail. And uh, lo and behold, I was I, I was uh, interviewed and selected for the position. <laughs> did you always have a love for history, or did it, is it something that you maybe fell into? No, no, no. History has always been my uh, my objective. I, uh, I, 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 you know, I changed my major two or three times in college, but ultimately I did a Ph.D. in history at LSU, hmm. and uh, that sort of set me on path. Was it always, uh, did you always kind of lean towards the uh, aeronautic history, or did you sort of dabble in, you know, maybe war or, or anything else? What, what, oh, you know, what was your path that sort of led you to, you know, aeronautics and space? 
Yeah, well, I, interestingly enough, I didn't have a particular background in uh, uh, in aerospace history at all. I uh, studied the history of the American West. Oh. And uh, so it's sort of a sideways uh, 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 turn in terms of my career, but uh, when I finished my Ph.D., I went looking for a position and found one with the U.S. Air Force, which put me on the path to study aeronautics history. didn't take very long to realize this is pretty interesting stuff. <laughs> And the same is true, obviously, with NASA and its role. Yeah, how would you enjoy it, uh, That your time as a NASA chief historian? Oh, I loved it. Uh, it, it was a great experience, and uh, I really enjoyed leading that history program, which, it, which remains one of the best history programs in the, in the U.S. government. And um, uh, while I was there, I'd like to think we accomplished some useful things, but uh, my successors in that, in that task since since 2002 when I left, uh, have continued to do a terrific job with the program. For sure. And yeah, 2002 was, was some time ago. So what have you been up to since? <laughs> so I, I, I moved <laughs> from, uh, from NASA headquarters to the National Air and Space Museum okay. at the Smithsonian. Uh, just, you know, flew, my office moved a few blocks down the street. Sure. And uh, I led the Space History Department there, which is a curatorial department. Ultimately, I became um, the associate director for collections and curatorial affairs there, and I retired from federal service in 2017 uh, out of the Smithsonian. And uh, since that time, I've been doing you know independent research, writing, consulting work, and so forth. Okay, yeah. So um, you know, you uh, tell me some of the other things that you've written prior to to this one. Well, uh, okay. So I, I did in, uh, in 2019 a book on the Apollo program called Apollo's Legacy, mm-hmm. and uh, it tries to make sense after 50 years of, uh, of what, was the, what was the Apollo program, why was it significant, why do we think about it today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've written other books on the history of aerospace uh, at the time of the anniversary of the centennial of flight, the Wright Brothers' 100th anniversary in 2003. Uh, I was involved in a couple of projects to document the history of flight. Some of those were big, oversized picture books, mm. and, uh, and some of them were scholarly analyses of what does it mean after a century of flying. So I, there, there's a variety of things that I've done out there. I also have done other subjects, like the history of baseball, uh, which is just one of my passions, and I, I do because it's fun. Wonderful. Yeah, especially in this book, NACA to NASA to Now, um, those, the, some of the things you've written about before, it sounds like the you know history of aviation after the Wright brothers, the, the right. Apollo program, those were some of the meatiest, some of the densest part of, of this book, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it's because of your extensive history in those subjects. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So what made you, what inspired you to say, to take a look at, you know, NACA, NASA, and say, I'm going to try to put everything, some of the most meaningful things into one volume. What, what, what sort of sparked that idea? Yeah, well, I mean, it originated uh, in the uh, early 2010s uh, when mm. we, were, we were thinking about the 100th anniversary of the NACA. And the NACA is the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, which is NASA's direct predecessor. And it was formed in, in 1915. So I was looking at that 1915 mm-hmm. centennial and thinking, wouldn't it be great to have a, a sort of an overview of the history of the agency? 
Uh, and that's when I began working on it. Uh, NASA was uh, supportive of the idea, although it, the, the book did not appear in, in, in 2015. Uh, it took a little while longer to do it than, than maybe any of us anticipated. But nonetheless, mm-hmm. uh, it, it turned out, I think, really quite well to cover that 100 years of, of aeronautics and space activities at the NACA and NASA. Yeah, yeah, and that's I can't wait to go into it because it does it does do a really good job of covering a lot of those things. And you said you know it takes it took some time to put it together, but um, tell me about your process. Whenever you started kicking off the idea, started pitching the idea, and now you have to go out, you have to start doing some research, you have to start talking to some folks. What was that like? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, at some level, this is a book that I'd been working on. For many, many years, I got this long history associated with the history of aerospace, mm-hmm. and uh, and previous work has sort of been associated with pieces of this. So, um, uh, so the idea was to put together a synthesis, a synthesis of of the agency and its evolution from origins to the present, and um, and and that sort of capsule capsule discussion is difficult to do. Um, you know how do you how do you do credit to all of the marvelous and broad things that NASA and the NACA previously has been involved in? Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't you can't tell the story of everything. And <laughs> uh, and what is the, what are the the key issues that you want to highlight? And that's that was a major part of the process of coming to grips with what we were trying to accomplish in this book. Yeah. So you, when when you start at the book, I mean, uh, well, if you start reading it, it it, it takes it uh, for the most part chronologically. You know, you right. start off uh, sort of with a high level, and then you get into, I mean, we're we're going into aviation and the formation of NAC after the Wright brothers, um, and this idea of this world class research and development program, and so. Mm-hmm. To, to sort of lay the groundwork for what NASA is today. I mean, and, and, and personally, I haven't really dove terribly deep into NACOCA. So the, these first couple of, of, of chapters were very revealing to me in terms of not only um, kind of understanding what NACA was, but how it evolved over time to have it make sense to have it evolve into NASA. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that, that happened was, you know, the Wright brothers were the first to fly at Kitty Hawk in, in 1903. So, you know, Americans fundamentally invented the airplane. Mm-hmm. and uh, But it didn't take 10 years for that technology to basically be outstripped in America. And Europe is leading the world in terms of aviation technology. Uh, the Americans look at World War One, especially, and they see uh, rapid advances in uh, the technology of flight, and they realize that uh, you know there's nothing like that that exists here, and the only way to get there is to is to really undertake research and development in this particular arena, and a way to do that, fundamental way to do it for the public good, for the for the larger aspects of all the things that are associated with this military, civilian, whatever else there might be, uh, the federal government should take this on. That led to the decision. And it took a while to get there, and I sort of tell that story. Mm-hmm. There's, some, there's some bobs and weaves and ins and outs of the process, but ultimately uh, the NACA is the result of that in, in 1915. And, and its task is 
pretty simple, uh, basically to investigate. And this is a term that 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 was used in the in the legislation to investigate the problems of fight, flight with a view to their practical solution. So we got to figure out how we're doing this. We've got to hire researchers. We've got to provide them with the tools they need to sort of further uh, the technology. And the result of that is the NACA, which becomes this world-leading uh, R&D organization. And, and it, it is remarkable to see how this happens from the point that what is now the Langley Research Center is established toward the end of uh, the 1910s um, through, you know, the history, the rest of the history of the NACA up to 1958 when it becomes NASA, um, you've got this uh, unparalleled development of really good engineers who are attracted to the NACA to come to work there because they're going to solve the cutting-edge problems uh, of flight, especially in aerodynamics. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the NACA put in their hands the tools that they needed to do this, the funding over long periods of time to, to answer these kinds of questions, and the freedom to pursue this. I mean, it, it is a remarkable story of success. And by the way, those fundamental tools were first and foremost a set of wind tunnels that were built beginning in the 1920s, mm-hmm. uh, and some of which are still in operation today, not all of which, uh, at, at NASA centers. And uh, and they really did change the nature of what we understood about flight in America. Yeah, because I, I I think you know a lot of us, especially that are that are into NASA, we take a look at at NASA and its evolution over decades. And I think one of the more revealing things to me was was just the length of time that the NICA um, was developing. You talked about the late 1910s to 1958. That's decades. That's a long right. time. Right. And there's a lot of progress that happens in there that you sort of navigate us through. You talk about the facilities. You talk about I mean just the planes in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it, I think one of the you know key themes. I'm trying to focus on some of the key themes without getting too too into the weeds here. But I think interestingly enough, uh, one of the motivators here was this, and, and you sort of alluded to it when you talked about Europe having you know um, you know taking a lot of this idea of flight and the research and development and and kind of running with it. Um, that was kind of one of the motivators for the NACA, and that's this idea of of nationalism and competition, right. um, trying to be the best. Um, and and you talked about, you know, World War One. There's there's this militaristic motivator, there's this competitive motivator that's that's very um, that's very a strong element in these decades through the NACA. Right, right. Uh, no question about it. So the military component of this is significant. Uh, I you know and uh, back in those days, there was something called the War Department. So it's now the Department of Defense. But uh, they're looking at the activities in World War One, thinking, "Oh my goodness, uh, we've got to figure out a way to do better." And uh, and everybody is doing the same sort of thing. And so, pushing technology and pushing the development of aircraft uh, that can do military things is a is an important part of this. But it's not just that. It's it's also uh, the rise of commercial aviation and the fact that uh, that you've mm-hmm. got the potential for initially one of the early activities was airmail. Uh, and that was a big deal. Uh, being able to move um, uh, letters and packages from one place to another in the space of a few hours was, was something un- unheard of in, in American history previously. Mm-hmm. And 
and and so uh, so the Postal Service is one of the early adopters of aircraft technology, and they want the best aircraft that's out there too. There's a whole variety of things, and some of those are 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 federal activities, but obviously there's the commercial world as well. So the 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 potential to move passengers and cargo on a commercial basis is a big piece of this, and it pushes a lot of technology in the 1920s and 30s. But the NACA is at the center of all of this technology development. It's got capabilities and resources and and expertise that is able to solve a bunch of problems that that have application not to an individual airplane per se, but to all kinds of aircraft that are out there in all settings. Yeah, and you and you do a really good job in the book to 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 highlight these different moments and sort of bring it back to the bigger picture of, you know, even with these motivators of sometimes that were nationalism in, in nature, you had these elements, uh, you know, that were purely research and development, the the progress of humanity. And, and you and you tell um, and you make sure to highlight in these stories about how th- these sorts of things in the NACA and at NASA impacted everybody's lives, how they ended up changing sort of the way that we we live. And, you, and commercial aviation is one of those um, big things. You talked about air mail being one of the early um, uses of, of air transportation, um, but, you know, eventually that evolved into people and a lot of the research done um, at, at the NACA change the way that we transport uh, and we travel through the United States and the world today. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, um, and, and this is a debate that historians have been having for a long time. Hmm. Uh, but my argument would be um, that one of the defining technologies of the 20th century was the ability to fly. Uh, at no time in human history have we previously had that capability. So this really did change the nature of everything around us. Uh, every aspect of our society is reordered through this particular uh, capability. And from our, you know, going to a, an airport and getting on an airplane and going to grandma's house, uh, you know, in the space of, of a few hours as opposed to a, a, at least a day trip or perhaps even longer mm. uh, in previous eras uh, is a big change, and we don't think anything about it today. It's taken as a given. But it wasn't in, you know, at the time that the NACA was established, those sorts of activities were not common yet. But they would become common within a very short period of time, in no small measure, because of the development of technology, and that development of technology was was fundamentally a part of what the NACA was doing to move move society forward. Absolutely. And I think you, you do a good job of, of highlighting those technological advances. Also, in those decades of the NACA, I thought you did a really good job of sorting laying the groundwork for the skills that were required at the time for the NACA, but that would eventually transfer over to NASA. And right. uh, you do so with um, by highlighting um, jobs like the idea of a computer and at the time it was a, a computer was a person and these right. computers you know were were part of the NACA but if you know NASA history and you know those early years of, of Mercury, Gemini, and uh, Apollo, you know that human computers were essential to the skills required for human spaceflight. You also do so with people. And I know uh, you laid the groundwork with Robert Gilruth and his time in the NACA and, and as, a, as a person, his influence in making NASA what it ultimately became. 
Yeah. So the human computers are a fascinating story. Uh, I mean, what we had at the NACA was researchers, engineers, doing research on various aspects of wing development or streamlining processes or compressibility factors, all kinds of issues that were out there that were uh, problems to be solved in terms of flight. And they would, they would, uh, and, and, you know, there are three legs to the stool associated with this research. One is theoretical studies. The NACA had some people who focused on theory. Uh, and, uh, and, and then there is ground studies associated with empirical work. A lot of that was done in wind tunnels. And, um, and then, of course, there's flight research. You test this thing in a, in, a, in a vehicle that can leave the ground and do things. Uh, and those, those three elements of this research project really changed the, the dynamics of what we understand about, about flight. And, and then the NACA made that knowledge available through the writing of technical reports and sending them out to everybody. I mean, it was remarkable. Mm. Uh, the distribution network that they put in place and the rigor with which these uh, reports were uh, were written and uh, and processed inside of the NACA, but all of the tabulations associated with that research was done by uh, you know the engineers would provide data then then these computers who were who were essentially math whizzes um, uh, would sit down and create tables of of of, of information about a particular thing. Uh, and that was a very involved process, and they weren't engineers per se, but but they were individ- but they were individuals who had this uh, this math skill, and they could produce these uh, these reports through this process. And some of those individuals, especially beginning in World War II and since, were women who uh, whose capabilities were not necessarily appreciated in society in the way they probably should have been. But if you you know, if they went to college and um, and was a math major, they could do a couple of things with that skill set. They could teach school. That's okay. Nothing wrong with that. But they could also make more money and do something that uh, that was really rewarding by becoming a computer. And there were several at the NACA centers uh, during World War II. Some of those were African-American women. Uh, and until the rise of electronic computers later on, uh, they were the dominant means whereby uh, the NACA and, and NASA in its early years uh, produced uh, data that was usable for other people. Yeah, I loved um, I loved how you kind of, you, you know, you, you can look at history and just kind of look at the technology, the facilities. You can look at sort of the hard facts. But I thought just overall you did a pretty good job of weaving the the, the personnel story and, and, the, and the people that 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 sort of helped uh, to create NASA and, and eventually navigate it through its history, what it was. Not not to jump too far, but but to jump to um, later in the book where you talk about shuttle, um, you do a really good job in those chapters of spending some time talking about the people and exploring workplace diversity and those sorts of things. And I know especially, you know, now, like the uh, we see some 
historical books, movies, you know, the one that jumps to mind is Hidden Figures. Sure. Um, but how... Um, how the these uh, how how the uh, reach of of NASA you know which which was traditionally for for Mercury right the Mercury Seven all all white men and you and you take take a a personal a social um, look at NASA's history and its evolution of workplace diversity. Right, right. Well, I, I mean, you know, NASA like uh, lots of organizations. Um, has always faced the challenge of of of, of looking more like America than not, mm. and um, the engineering world uh, and the science world was largely the province of white males for much of the history of of the United States, and um, and with efforts inside the federal government to to diversify to become more inclusive, uh, NASA responded to that and. Uh, and, and women and minorities were brought in to um, uh, to perform a lot of those functions to the extent today that we don't think too much about it. Um, but uh, that wasn't always the case, and there were notable instances uh, in the NACA and NASA's history where uh, where individuals were marginalized for no good reason, through no fault of their own, um, uh, and and efforts were had to be made to uh, to try to overcome that. Absolutely. Now jumping back, uh, just to sort of close this uh, this the NAC conversation, NACA conversation is, um, you know, we talked about where we spent some time talking about the people. You talked about technologies. I think one of the key things that it helps to really uh, us uh, kind of close the NACA portion of the book and sort of pave the way for when we start talking about the formation of NASA and and why these two organizations just made sense you know that it made sense to evolve NACA into what NASA is as you know this research and development one of the things was the X-planes and you spend some time talking about those Chuck Yeager's um, uh, very you know, historic, uh, breaking the sound barrier sort of thing. And, uh, you know, this idea of rocketry in aviation and sort of how we take this, this R&D aspect. And when NASA was forming, um, you, you, uh, do a good job of, of kind of, uh, leading us very, very smoothly from the, from the back end of NACA to what would eventually become NASA. Yeah, sure. So, um, one of the things that that the NACA did during World War II was uh, was really uh, appropriately so move all in in terms of military technology and work very closely with what would become the Air Force and the Navy on um, uh, research development uh, for aircraft that would be the most modern, sophisticated that existed in the world, and uh, uh, the X plane series of uh, of aircraft. Uh, you know the experimental aircraft after World War II, especially, is a direct result of that. And the X-1, uh, which is a f- the famous story that everybody's heard about, mm-hmm. about Chuck Yeager breaking the sound barrier—not that it was actually a barrier per se—in <laughs> um, 1947 is all uh, is is well known. And uh, and and Yeager, of course, was an was an Air Force pilot, but the project was a, was a partnership between the military and mm-hmm. and NASA. And Bell Aircraft, which was the manufacturer of the X-1. So um, that set in, in train a whole series of, of um, successive programs, uh, which still exist right up to the present. I mean, there's other there, there's X-planes that are out there uh, over time that have done a variety of really important and significant things. Most famous of those is probably the X-15, which flew between the late 1950s and to the late 1960s. Mm-hmm. 
uh, in the hypersonic realm, and it's it's a set of uh, of data that uh, is still being used by uh, uh, by people today in terms of what we know about high speed flight in the atmosphere uh, and going to the edge of space. The um, and and those partnerships really uh, really sort of defined a lot of activities of the NACA in the World War II and since era, and have also been important in the context of NASA's efforts since that time. The rise of guided missiles, uh, also resulting from World War II. I mean, there, every nation who was a combatant in World War II built missiles of some type. Sometimes they were as simple as a rocket-powered grenade that was used on the ground by infantry, the bazooka, if you will, for the American Army. Um, but everybody realized that the, that the future of, of long-range uh, military flight was going to be ballistic missiles of some kind. Mm-hmm. And right at the end of World War II, the NACA gets involved in that. Robert Gilruth. Uh, who would go on to become the center director at, at what is now the Johnson Space Center and led the space task group uh, through the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo eras, um, was the leader of that particular effort. He was based at Langley Research Center. He'd been there a number of years. He'd done all kinds of really significant work, but he recognized the necessity of moving in this direction, and he pursued this. They established a facility, which is now Wallops, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, flight facility and um, and began launching uh, uh, missiles out of that, testing them for mostly atmospheric aerodynamics at the time and and uh, and propulsion technologies, but and and didn't get into space. They weren't trying to do that necessarily, but they really laid the groundwork for what NASA would be doing when it became a reality in the 1950s. Yeah, and that's um, that's sort of how you uh, make that transition when you, when we lead uh, out of NACA and into talking about some of the history of NASA. Um, you know, the the first things you tackle really are exactly that. You know, uh, but but this idea of when you kick off NASA, I think the central theme here is the first things that you that you talk about in the in the book when it comes to uh, NASA's early history is human spaceflight. And that seems to be one of the motivators. Um, you know, you already laid the groundwork earlier in the book uh, with the NACA for nationalism and competition as a motivator. Obviously, Sputnik was one of the key things, if not the key thing, that sparked the formation of NASA um, and and the competition with the Soviet Union at the time. Um, but what, I think it's I think it's fair to conclude that human spaceflight was one of the drivers. Uh, on the formation and the early years of NASA. Absolutely. And, and it, 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 it was a part of a longer discussion about potential for, for space activities. I, I mean, fundamentally, it's about going somewhere else and humans doing that. And, uh, and, and that goes back probably earlier than even the 1940s, but certainly mm-hmm. by then, there's a, 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 a significant aerospace community that's sort of looking forward to that prospect. And uh, as NASA is created, almost coincidental with the creation of NASA, it gets a human spaceflight mission. There was a long effort before that time inside the Department of Defense uh, to pursue uh, manned uh, flights into space for military purposes, mm-hmm. but um, those 
those got through a lot of paper studies, but not to the point where they actually uh, uh, got to go ahead to proceed with it. Uh, and that mission by Eisenhower was was given to NASA as soon as it was stood up and operating beginning in the fall of 1958. Now, um, if you take a look at the book as a whole um, and look at kind of where, where, what moments are the densest, uh, for sure, at least in, in my experience in reading the book, um, you spend a lot of time um, in those early human spaceflight programs, Mercury, right. Gemini, and Apollo, particularly in Mercury and Apollo. But um, would you would you say that it's fair to conclude that um, those particular programs in terms of making NASA what it is today, laying the foundation for other programs and the, and the history of the agency in general, um, they, they take the cake in terms of um, considering what programs through all of NASA may be the most formative, may be the most important um, I know at the at the very epilogue uh, of of the book, you say you know of all. It, I guess you get asked this question a lot: is you know what were what what was you know the most important program? And I, I think uh, one of the things you pointed out was was uh, our important mission. And you said P- Apollo eleven takes a cake for sure, um, but but you you mentioned all of these other other things as well. But I think it's fair to conclude that in terms of. Um, you know, what makes NASA what it is today, that these early programs really were very powerful? Oh, no, no question about it. So uh, I, I sort of think of, of Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo as siblings. Mm. And, uh, and Mercury is that first, that, that, you know, the oldest child, per se. <laughs> and, uh, and, and there's all of these hopes and dreams that are sort of attached to that. And it's very clear uh, that that's what happened with Mercury. And it was a stellar effort, no question about it. Um, and obviously, you know, the third child in this um, uh, is Apollo, which succeeds beyond expectations and, and, and accomplishes all of these astounding uh, 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 knowledge uh, uh, compilations that result from it. Uh, and, and then the middle child, the Jan Brady, if you will, uh, that middle child is Gemini, which sort of gets lost in the shuffle, but it also was incredibly significant. Mercury was a simple process. Uh, you put an astronaut up, can they survive in space? Nobody knew that when uh, when the, that program was conceived, and it, and the six flights of the Mercury program demonstrated that they that it that it, you could be successful in in Earth orbit, that you could be there for a long period of time. Uh, Apollo is that is that effort that's going to go to the moon in which astronauts are going to get out, they're going to do things there, ultimately leading hopefully to um, a, a long-term exploration of space and, a, and the beginning of, of a multi-planetary species, perhaps at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. And, um, but to get there and do that successfully, Jim and I had to, had to work. You had to be able to rendezvous and dock in space. They so had to get out of the spacecraft and do what we now call EVA, spacewalks. Uh, to to accomplish useful things, and that program worked beautifully as well. So those three efforts together over a, essentially a ten year period uh, really did change the dynamic of things that uh, allowed us to understand what we could do and not do in sort of the uh, translunar and cislunar and Earth orbital space. The um, but and this is where I think the shuttle and the station are so significant mm. is that those programs made um, 
turned Earth orbit into a normal sphere of human activity. It's, it, it is no longer a frontier. It is no longer a mystery what we're going to encounter yeah. when we go into Earth orbit. And the astronauts, through years of experience with shuttle and station, uh, have, have mastered, and the technical people associated with that, have mastered understanding of this particular thing. Uh, enabling us to now use orbital space in ways that we never dreamt of previously. And that's where we are today. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Um, you, you definitely navigate us through that that history from early formation of NASA and a lot of the human spaceflight programs. I appreciate it, though, that, of course, what you're trying to do here in the book is capture as much of you know NASA's storied history. And you have to pull out some of the most significant missions, some of the most significant programs. And after you get through these these dense chapters of Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, you go back in time and you go back to 1960 and start talking about, hey, even though these things were happening and they were absolutely the forefront of NASA, they were the most publicly visible things that were happening um, to, to what people were paying attention to. Trying to land humans on the moon, obviously, is going to capture most people's attention. But in the background, there are these there are these exploration programs, and you talk about a lot of science efforts, um, starting with you know these landers that are exploring the solar system. You talk about the appeal of Mars. We talk about these observatories that are looking at the expanses of the universe. You talk about Earth observations, and you and you weave through some of the most important programs that I think define what captures maybe NASA's science portfolio today and what we find most important but but you navigate and you, and you, you navigate that by jumping back in time after um, after Apollo and sort of taking us through the science programs oh yeah uh, so the uh, uh, I mean very early on uh, in the 1950s, NASA's involved in robotic exploration as well, and the, and the first target, of course, was was the uh, was the moon, and that was directly tied to the to the larger Mercury, Gemini, Apollo effort, and the Ranger and Surveyor and Lunar Orbiter programs are directly uh, feeding into the the moon landing effort as well. But so the moon is a part of that discussion, but the planets are as well. And what else can we understand about this? Well, our two closest possible targets are Venus and Mars. Venus is actually a little bit closer than Mars. It's also a a, a near twin of Earth in terms of size, and there were a lot of uh, mythology associated with uh, what we might find once we get underneath the clouds there, and. Our first efforts, the Mariner program, uh, sends uh, sends probes there in the early 1960s, and we learn that it's an inferno and not a not a place that's very inviting. Uh, but Mars always was thought to be a, a, a sort of a place where we might be able to go, where we might be able to settle, where we might be able to um, you know put colonies ultimately, and uh, and so it has become a target and. We also thought that we might well find some life there, and there's still that possibility. There's a number of folks who are still suggesting that there may be microbial life underneath the planetary surface or, hmm. or, or somewhere else there. And, um, and that has driven a lot of activity. And what we have found there has been stupendously exciting over time. And there's 
people who are jazzed about that, and of course the rovers there, and the, and the landers, and the helicopter possibilities, and the airplane possibilities, and on and on and on, uh, in terms of our robotic exploration of Mars, and ultimately with the potential of putting boots on the ground there, uh, has uh, has motivated a lot of activity in terms of Mars exploration. Beyond that, of course, there's outer planetary exploration to the to the gra- uh, to the uh, to the to the giants the gas giants that are out there and um and the outer edges of the solar system and the potential to get above the atmosphere with observatories with telescopes most famous of those of course uh although they are not the first is the Hubble Space Telescope mm-hmm. deployed by the shuttle in 1990, serviced several times, and still operational today. The uh, recently um, uh, deployed uh, James Webb Space Telescope, which has been stupendous mm-hmm. in what it has uh, offered us in just a, you know, a little more than a year of activity. So um, we're, we're excited and jazzed by that, and that whole effort... Uh, has prompted us to learn and understand more effectively about the cosmos than ever before. And uh, there, is, there is nobody that's out there who, um, who is not energized by the knowledge gained through these processes. Yeah, and I think I think that's probably one of the most telling things by the time you finish this chapter is just how much of an impact these programs made on humanity's knowledge of the cosmos. Um, absolutely revealing, and especially you know, kind of bringing it back to human spaceflight. You mentioned this already, but but the the. In, the as we were exploring, it became more and more interesting, this this idea of traveling to Mars and the secrets that it can unlock that is today a key motivator for why we want to put boots on that particular planet out of all of them. Right, right you bet. Um, Mars is a special case. I mean, so I, I can recall in the mid-1960s when I was in grammar school, uh, our science books, which were a little outdated, but they said in no uncertain terms that they that that they believed that there was life on on the planet Mars, and their reason for believing this was that they saw changes to the planetary surface from telescopes here on Earth. This is before the first probes had been sent there, mm. and. Um, and that probably there was algae growing or lichens of some kind growing there, and they they would change with the seasons. And I personally was excited by that when I was a kid. Uh, lots of other people were. But as it turns out, and, and NASA showed us uh, through a succession of efforts, that has not been the case. Uh, what they saw were dust storms and a variety of other things. Nobody was making this up. They just, uh, you know, the data was not sufficiently advanced to to really tell the full story at that point in time. But that doesn't mean that there's not some really significant things to learn there, and it also doesn't mean there's not life that exists there. And I'm not suggesting little green men or anything like that, Mm. but, um, uh, but, you know, perhaps the potential for microbial life of some kind. And, uh, And that still energizes a lot of people, myself included. I mean, Right. In my mind, a fundamental science question of this is, are we alone in the universe? And 
I don't believe we are. I think, I think there's other entities out there. Uh, I also don't believe they're visiting Earth, so don't get, don't, don't ever, don't anybody think that I'm <laughs> a, a believer in UFOs and things of that nature uh, that are coming here from other planets. But, um, but that I think is a fundamental question. I'd love to know the answer to that. I'd like to think in our lifetimes we will definitively learn the answer to that question. Yeah, and it's becoming kind of more and more realistic, right? A lot of these programs, I like think the one that, that um, and, and observatories, the one that comes to mind is Kepler. Um, just, you know, they keep adding new planets all the time of right. uh, these planets that they're finding. And it's becoming more clear that there are so many planets. We didn't know that for a while, that, that there were so many stars that had so many planets orbiting them and that there would be a lot in this ca- category of habitable um, and so, yeah, exactly that. You know, is is there life out there? It's becoming increasingly, I think, positive. I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of optimistic scientists out there that are saying that it's very possible, but um, you know, like they're really, really far away. So, yeah, um, yeah, exactly that. Not not exactly little green men, but uh, I thought you did a really good job in in, in those couple of chapters. Um, you know, you talked shuttle next, but I wanted to jump to um, aeronautics because. We talked so much about it in the beginning of, the, of our podcast today about the NACA. Um, you sort of bring it bring it back that says, you know, there there's that first A in NASA, the the aeronautics, um, and, and we never sort of let go of that. Even though we were exploring space, uh, we were still making these advancement in um, human aviation. Right. Well, and we and we can't minimize that. Yeah. I, and, and it sort of gets lost lost in the shuffle for most people. Exactly. Uh, you know, the NACA becomes NASA, and, uh, and and sort of the aeronautics part of this research and development effort falls by the wayside for most people. But it's still there, and it's still doing really significant things uh, right up to the present. Uh, and if you look at any piece of of, of, of technology associated with flight, and you're going to find NASA's fingerprints over the R&D on this. Uh, it, 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 is, it is pretty much everywhere. And I'm fascinated by, uh, by obviously, things like the X programs, which still exist mm-hmm. uh, and were, have been operated in the context of, you know, the NASA environment uh, as well. But, uh, but there's, you know, much smaller things that you don't necessarily think about. Um, and and I, and I love the use of things like um, the uh, research plane that Langley had for many years uh, that was basically doing things like wind shear research and how to how to create warning systems so that pilots know if there's going to be a, a dramatic wind shear as they're coming in for a landing and um, and 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 the the so-called glass cockpit the the uh, the digital uh instruments that are now ubiquitous in aircraft that uh, uh that were pioneered uh by lots of people but NASA was at the center of a lot of that research as well the the modern and futuristic possibilities for air traffic control and and I could go on and on mm-hmm. and these are not things that grab a lot of headlines at least in the you know it's not like astronauts watching walking on the moon but it is incredibly significant Mm -hmm. and it has made uh, flight one of the safest forms of transportation that exists and uh and ubiquitous worldwide you know i find it uh um you know when we when we started this conversation about the the idea of of writing the book and and the one of the kind of sparks of inspiration for starting it 
at this time, at, or originally in the 2010s, uh, was coming up on the centennial of, of NACA, you know, 1915, 2015. I think what's what's interesting is I was, I was kind of curious as I was getting towards the end of the book on how this is going to go because um, what what's interesting is just how much progress has been made in these past couple of years. Um, you know, I, I think back to 2015 and where we are in 2023. Um, a lot has happened in the world of commercial space, and uh, I, I find it uh, interesting um, that you know one of the ways that you sort of end the book is this idea of of commercialization. Um, you you start with some of the early efforts of commercialization, and then and then take it through um, you know demo uh, demo two. So I think maybe maybe I, and I'm I'm curious to hear about your process because um, when you started writing this right and then how you had to maybe make some adjustments along the way that says, oh, you know, we keep adding to the to the story here of, of there's this there's this there's this rapid um, progress in commercialization. And I wonder how you navigated that progress in terms of writing the book and trying to figure out a way on how and when to close it. Yeah, well I mean that's always the challenge when you're trying to come up to as close to the present as possible right. when, you're, when you're writing something like this. Um, and you know, it, it, it's obvious that the 21st century, sort of a, a dramatic shift, has been um, not NASA contracting with an outside prime contractor for some spacecraft or whatever it happens to be, but uh, but a possibility of vendors that are uh, in a variety of places with a variety of capabilities, and you can pick and choose and 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 contract for a ride on a vehicle as opposed to the vehicle itself. And that's been a shift, uh, no question about it. Mm -hmm. And there were people at NASA when I was there in the 1990s who were championing this particular uh, prospect for the future. That, uh, and and there, were, there were individuals in the private sector who were trying to make it a reality, uh, often without a lot of success, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. The... Um, uh, the the difficulty has been the uh, uh, you know as I, the way I usually frame it is you know in the in the 1990s the landscape was was littered with failed launch vehicle companies mm. uh, they'd be formed they would get venture capital they would try to uh, try to achieve their uh, their uh, agenda in terms of building a new launch vehicle that could uh, be used for a variety of purposes including supplying. Uh, what became the International Space Station when it was placed in orbit, and uh, and most of them failed, uh, and and there were a couple that were successful. And I always like to point back to Orbital Sciences in the 1980s, which which built the a, a launcher that was actually launched off of an L-1011. It was an air-launched vehicle mm. that could put payloads into orbit, and uh, done, you know, without. You know, it was not done as a as a government contract. These guys did it on their own, and they created a company that ultimately became um, a, a part of Northrop Grumman and is now launching the Cygnus Antares uh, launcher for for uh, all kinds of purposes, including supplying the space station. The um, and, and then, of course, SpaceX and Elon Musk's effort. Uh, to develop another launch capability that's also been critical in this process as well. But those come but that one comes a little bit later on. Mm -hmm. And 
in the 1990s when I was at NASA, not everybody was sure this was going to work, and there were a lot of people who were questioning whether or not this is the right way to go. Um, and, and, and the rationale was not just sort of pig-headedness or, uh, you know, living in the past or any of that kind of stuff. It was, it was concern about whether or not private sector had the capabilities uh, to pull this off, they had the resources necessarily, uh, necessary to, to make it a reality, and whether or not they might cut a few corners in terms of safety. Uh, and one of the things that has panned out here has been this transition to uh, to commercial uh, services that NASA can now buy, rather than buying a space shuttle and all the components uh, for that, they can now buy a ride on uh, on a couple of different vehicles that are private sector owned and operated. Yeah, and and it'll be it'll be very telling to see what happens over the next couple of years, over the next decade or so. I know. NASA's current efforts right now is expanding upon that. That idea, as you mentioned, you know, not a lot, lot of folks thought it could work a while ago, but I think industry has proven um, that this capability is is very possible, and not only possible, but um, seems to be the, the the way forward for particularly low Earth, low Earth orbit. Um, you know, that there's talks now about the station is not going to last forever, so what comes next? And the idea is these commercial orbiting space stations that is... Exactly like you you're, you were talking about with, um, you know, purchasing a, purchasing a service as a either transportation provider, cargo provider. The idea is, that, you know, you, it's almost like a kind of hotel visit. You're you're purchasing space on a on a space station. So it sort of leads the the book sort of ends with this idea of you know this 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 commercialization. And I, I sort of wanted to kind of get your grasp on on. Um, you know, with with figuring out how to end this book and, and figuring out kind of where this is going, I think what's interesting is so much has been has changed in the past decade. And, um, you know, one of the things I'm sure the idea of, of writing and finishing and publishing a book, um, you know, you, you, you write it and, and you get get it ready to go. And then, you know, you have things like Artemis, right? Artemis 1. Uh, that lifts off, and it's it's this beginning of a new chapter. And I know you address it in the ep- epilogue, and you and this um, you talk about the benefits of the moon. Uh, I, I kind of want to hear your perspective on that. Just given given your deep research and writing into NASA's storied history, um, the the idea that you you end the book with this commercialization thing, but w- it's almost like we're we're about to start this new chapter of of human space exploration, particularly with Artemis. And I wanted to get, kind of gauge your thoughts on, on that program and, and those efforts. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that, that, uh, that, that's happening, and I, I do see this as a reality and a very positive development, is that uh, NASA is able to move uh, from Earth orbital activities. It can turn that over to, to private sector firms uh, and whatever activities that are necessary that NASA needs to engage in in Earth orbit, they can buy those services from someone else. Mm-hmm. So servicing the space station, uh, ferrying astronauts to and from that, or a follow-on you know, habitat in space or whatever, a research uh, facility in space, whatever comes beyond this. Uh, and NASA can buy those services from, from someone else. But that frees the agency up to pursue the exploration agenda in trans and and uh, cis lunar space, and I really think, I mean, and that's where Artemis is headed. Mm-hmm. 
you know, the ability to go back to the moon and and to, and to do some things there, and uh, and perhaps establish a. I think the first step is a research station on the moon, and um, and that research station probably not going to be flashy. Uh, probably not going to be you know of of. Of a, a glass domed facility or anything like that. For mm-hmm. one thing, cosmic rays would be a problem, but um, but it would look probably a lot like Antarctica. There would be a, a, a community of researchers, uh, scientists, engineers, whoever other types might need to be there for for a purpose for some period of time, and uh, and they would be taken in and out. Uh, on a regular schedule, and that's the that's our first step to move off this planet. To be perfectly honest, on a on a sustained basis, uh, and we're, I think we're going to see that. Uh, I'd like to think in my lifetime, the uh, and certainly in the 21st century, I think we will see that. Uh, you know, from there, you know, maybe we can make we can incorporate the moon into a normal realm of human activity. We're not close to that yet, but I'd like to think that that will happen and ultimately then move on to Mars and other places beyond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a very interesting time. I'm, I'm, uh, it'll be interesting to see the, you know, NACA to NASA to now volume two after, uh, <laughs> after all this is said and done. I, um, I kind of wanted to end with, well, uh, we sort of sort of begin wrapping up here with, uh, you know, you, you published uh, this as a NASA ebook. Um, and I'm curious as to as to why you made that decision. I know I know you have history with NASA. Um, you could have gone other places, but um, this 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 wonderful book is freely available on NASA.gov. Uh, and I wonder why you made that decision. Well, I, I mean, one of the things that uh, so I'm my initial conception of this was something we would do for NASA, mm. and um, and NASA has had a one volume history in the past. Uh, there's a uh, a volume that was published in the 1980s called Orders of Magnitude that was sort of a synopsis of the of the agency's history. Mm. Roger Bilstein, a very fine historian, was the author of that. Uh, and but but that book, by the time we started talking about that, was you know 25 years old, and a lot had happened uh, during that period of time, and we gained a lot of understanding beyond you know even areas that he talked about. So. Um, it seemed logical to produce a one-volume history, and, and my audience for this fundamentally is NASA, uh, the people who are there today, uh, hmm. who are certainly acquainted with some aspects of NASA's history, and are very much there because they want to be engaged in these kinds of activities. NASA's an unusual federal agency. Uh, you know, there's there's obviously people of all skill sets who are associated with this. Uh, there are scientists, engineers, astronauts, technicians, uh, but there's also, you know, bookkeepers and accountants and contract people and you know, you name it, but they all are motivated by this, by this larger agenda of, uh, of, of doing really interesting cutting edge things pointed toward the future uh, in terms of air and space. And, and that is, uh, there's a camaraderie around that, uh, a, a sense of cohesion to the mission that um, that permeates the agency. It did from the very origins of of the NACA right up to the present. That's maybe 
not quite the same in, in lots of other uh, institutions where you don't necessarily have an identity uh, with, the, um, with the mission of the organization that the NASA folks have. And I find that remarkable. And being able to tell that story of things that have been done in the past, both those that are positive and well as some that are negative, uh, and, you know, the, the successes and the failures, mm-hmm. uh, I think is, is, is really an important thing to do and that everybody should have an understanding of. Well, we certainly appreciate it. I mean, as, as part of the NASA workforce myself, I, I very much enjoyed it. Um, I learned a lot, absolutely. And uh, I'll tell you, just, just getting the chance to talk to you and kind of hear more that goes even deeper into sort of the background and your thoughts, your overall thoughts of, uh, of NASA and its story. Um, you can tell you're, you're very passionate about this. And so I feel very lucky to have had the chance to talk with you today, Roger. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure. pleasure and, I, and I thank you for get, um, hopping on the phone today to and and chatting with us to um to give us more perspective on this i hope folks that are listening are inspired to go and check this book out yeah i hope they i hope they really like it uh obviously you can download it but there are hard copies available as well uh, by uh, contacting the nasa history office wonderful wonderful roger lanius thank you so much appreciate your time thank you take care all right Hey, thanks for sticking around. Hope you learned something today. Fantastic to chat with Roger about his book. He went into great detail, but of course, I very much encourage you to go to nasa.gov ebooks and check out this book, read it through its entirety. We really just skimmed the surface today and just sort of introduced you to a lot of those key concepts and themes, um, but really, if you want the meaty stuff, highly recommend you go and uh, check out that book. Uh, he mentioned uh, sort of at the very end, you can read it as an as a ebook. You can download the PDF. Um, there's the access to it is free. It's actually one of the reasons that we're able to talk to Roger uh, today. I don't really get a chance to promote uh, other books, but because this is on NASA.gov, because it's free, um, it is is there for your enjoyment. And I had a great time being able to chat with with him today. Uh, of course, if you want to check out more podcasts, we're not the only one at NASA. You can go to nasa.gov slash podcast. It's in the same drop-down menu that you can find the eBooks. You can find us there, and you can listen to any of our episodes in no particular order. You can also check out some of the other shows that we have across the agency. We also monitor social media from time to time uh, and check to see if there's any questions or if anyone has any episode suggestions. We're on the NASA Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you can use the hashtag AskNASA uh, to submit those if you would like. This episode was recorded on March 16th, 2023. Thanks to Will Flato, Pat Ryan, Heidi Lavelle, Belinda Polito, and Jane Jennings. And of course, thanks again to Roger Lanius for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be back next week.